Hello there, fellow warriors. I've been hearing that people really want to hear from other people. They really are liking the guest episodes and the interactions. So I'm planning on doing these at least every other episode. And I'm really super excited today because I'm bringing on one of my favorite warriors. Some of you know him. Some of you have met him or heard from him. But he's my son, Sean. And um, I guess because he's going through the same experience from a different perspective that I am with regard to Jamie and, and all of that stuff, I know for a fact that he is a warrior and also can provide perspectives that I just can't. So let's get right to it. And uh, we wanted to talk, oh, by the way, we're going to talk about something today that we kind of just touched on. And as usual, don't have any plans, don't have any bullet points, don't have any scripts. So you're getting it just as it comes out of our heads and our hearts. So welcome, Sean. Well, uh, depending on where you are in the country, good afternoon or good evening. I appreciate you having me here. I do look forward to speaking with people and hopefully they get something out of uh, hearing from me. They will. What if they're down under? What should you say? Good day? Is that what they say? I'd have to figure out what time zone they're in, where they're at. Uh, <laughs> what happy, dialect? Happy tomorrow. <laughs> Who says that? I think that they're a day ahead of us. So. <laughs> happy tomorrow, yeah. Just a joke. Yeah, it is true. Um, so, uh, I know that those of you listening, but maybe there will be some people who haven't listened to any of this before and don't know a lot about my story. Um, so, my daughter Jamie, Sean's sister, who is was two years older was in addiction for 15 years and for 13 years for me. And, and it'll be, maybe it'd be interesting to, to ask you about this, Sean. Again, we hadn't planned anything, but I spent 13 years, as you know, on the roller coaster from hell, as I call it, trying to save her. That was, you know, I'm the mom. Dun, 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 dun. You know, I was going to try to save her. And the more I failed at that, because I figured out later that you can't, but I felt like a failure as a mother who could not save their only daughter. What, I mean, what's wrong with me? And, um, but it took me 13 years to, uh, turn that corner and to stop crying in the walk-in closet. So I, it, it, it's interesting to me to think about what were you during, doing during those same 13 years that I was smiling on the outside and dying on the inside. I think you went about it a different way. Yeah, definitely. My way was a lot more of like a out of sight, out of mind approach. And part of that was just being, um, not actually being fully aware of the gravity of the situation until I was probably 14, um, somewhere around there when Jamie was screaming back at you guys and storming out of the house and we wouldn't see her for a week at a time, two weeks at a time. That was when I really had to like fully understand what was happening, but I didn't understand what was fully happening with drugs necessarily. It was more of I just thought she was behaving badly and being a bad kid and me thinking I would never act like that and sort of dismissing her as a buffoon and like walking away from a pretty easy situation. So for me, I just continued on living my life. And then of course, the first time she was shot, that sort of changed things. I was 16 at that point. And then everyone at school was knowing about it. And then that to me was now I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be the guy whose sister got shot at school. I don't want to have those conversations. So that's where the out of sight, out of mind came into play. It was just very, let's pretend like this isn't happening because I'm embarrassed. So I think part of your embarrassment wasn't necessarily that she was a victim of, of domestic violence, but wasn't it because what we had suspected, we're not stupid, but she was crafty. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, even when I suspected for those three years that she was doing drugs and alcohol and all this, Jamie was so good, so smart. This kid was so smart that she could hide things from me. You know what she'd tell me? You think too much. And because I do think a lot, then I would think about me thinking too much. Yeah. <laughs> I would drive myself crazy. But I think maybe that also I kind of hid things from you. But I think one of the reasons that you were really embarrassed is because we found out that this guy was a gang member. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it's not like I was embarrassed that she allowed herself to be a victim of a crime because, uh, especially of a domestic crime, because obviously we know that the, there's no rhyme or reason why that happens to a specific type of person, um, individual, whatever. I mean, it can happen to really literally anyone. It was exactly that. It was all of my friends are like, what's your sister doing hanging out in the hood? What's she doing hanging ar- around gang members? What's she doing hanging around people that are carrying guns? We live in Issaquah. It's like, you know, the worst thing that happens is some fights at a party on a Friday night or, you know, somebody gets arrested for a DUI. It's like real innocuous crimes. So the fact that people recognize that she put herself in a situation to be in harm's way was the part that was embarrassing because it was sort of like people would act like, well, what did she think was going to happen? And then I'm like, well, I don't want to hear that out of you. And so now I just don't want to talk about this because I don't want to get upset. Yeah, so, you don't have to feel defensive. Yeah, exactly. And may, you don't want, probably didn't want to feel the feelings that came with it, too, because I'm assuming that you had a lot of mixed feelings. I know I did, even. Even though I love her with all my heart, I gave birth to this child, I also want to slap her upside the head. Well, we can feel however we want, but it's sort of that, that whole thing of, like, I can say whatever I want about my family, but you can't. It was that. Like, of course, I said a lot of nasty things about Jamie over the course of time. Um, and I've said a couple of things not so nice about her since she passed too. I mean, <laughs> she would, I picture her laughing though. Yeah. The one good thing about Jamie was she had broad shoulders. She didn't get offended too yeah. easily. Yeah. It's just a matter. It was just a matter of no one else could, could possibly understand. And I couldn't understand that concept at the time that no one else knew how to process it. So they wanted to talk about it. It was the hot gossip of the town. I mean, it's a question. Big time, yeah. 50,000 people in my high school, 1,600, and every single person knew about it and was talking about it. I was it on and, the news the night before. Yeah. yeah it was... So it was, it definitely affected me in a real way. And, you know, going into football practice for the first time after that happened, having the whole team know, and I have to, you know, my coach And I'm sure they were to... feeling sorry for you, too. They were trying to be nice about it, and but you also probably didn't want that. Yeah, I didn't want, I wanted no acknowledgement of it whatsoever because it was easier for me to pretend like it didn't happen. You know, like why I didn't come to the hospital for four or five days after she was shot. It was just like, nah, this isn't happening. I'll just stay over here in La La Land and pretend. Just hanging out in North Seattle with my cousins, pretending like nothing happened. Yeah. No, I get that, Sean, that because, you know what, I don't know if I, if I ever told you this, but the day that she was released from the hospital was eight days I spent next to her bedside. She did not want me to leave that room, even though she treated me like garbage, to be perfectly honest with you. And, and, and to be fair to listeners, okay. She was being a pain in the you-know-what in general, but she did have 50 staples holding her gut back together. was feeling physically horrific. Yeah, it was I bad. think it's normal, sorry to interrupt, but I think that it's normal to unfortunately sometimes take out the the pain that we're feeling, whether it's physical or metaphysical pain on the people closest to us. That's just sort of yeah. a, a natural thing. It's not right, but part of me now believes that that's almost a sign of if somebody is treating you that way, it almost means that they care more. Yeah, because you feel more comfortable. Yeah, and they can be passionate with people that they. Yeah, she only wanted me to walk with her, but walking was terribly painful, so she was mad at me. She only wanted me to bathe her, but then she was yelling at me in the shower. Yeah, it was it was really obviously, and I'm also in complete shock that we're in a hospital where she's not even registered. 
if you called the hospital and said asked for her name they'd say she's not here because to protect of, her to from protect her any yeah. sort of uh, finishing of the job exactly type of thing. and so you know they were laying in this you know of course all the her friends showed up it's not like these people by the way these people i don't mean to say it like that but the people she was hanging out with they knew exactly what floor to go to for trauma recovery I mean, boom, they showed up on that floor like it was well, nothing. Well, you mean, you mean specifically people in gangs who have experience with this exact type of yeah. incident who didn't find it. Her friends were not distraught. Not like they should her, have been. Her friends from Issaquah were distraught, but her friends from the Central District who were a part of that experience were not distraught. They thought that it was almost like... It was the latest this thing. This is what happens. Yeah. It was actually like the latest cool thing to talk yeah. about. That's more like their attitude. You're right. It was really bizarre. Plus, I'm laying there thinking, how can this even be happening? How can this be my world... These people that I don't understand, like you're saying, are talking about it like it's an everyday occurrence. We're not registered. She's not being nice. I don't know where we're all going to go from here. The whole thing. What I was going to say is that the last day, Rich went to get the car. And actually, your dad was in the up there mm -hmm. that day. And Rich went to get the car. And we had to park quite a ways away. And it's not the nicest area or anything where this hospital, great hospital, but not in the nicest area. And all of a sudden, I just thought, I can't be in this room for one more second. I left her with your dad and I took off and I ran. I remember that, yeah. I ran down the hall. The only time I stopped was when the elevator made me stop. And I ran through the entire hospital. I ran and I didn't stop until I got to the car. Yeah. It was just like, so I understand your, your wanting to escape. I couldn't escape in that situation, but I get that feeling of like, I don't want to, I didn't want to deal with it. I wanted to run away. And I only got to the parking lot, but I did run away. Yeah. No, I think I understand that. It, it's uh, There's no rhyme or reason for why we react to things the way that we do, specifically traumatic things. And that was obviously the most traumatic thing that had happened to you to that point in your entire life. So Yeah, by and, multiples. And like you said, you had no choice but to be there for her for every single moment of that experience. So I think when you finally got an opportunity to... So maybe you can relate to how I was feeling like... Totally. Now, I, I just I got to get away from this. I can't... Yeah. This is too much. And I, honestly, I never felt that you shouldn't have... I never thought, oh, Sean should be here. It, that never even crossed my mind. I allowed you to feel however you needed to feel. But I probably didn't... To be honest, I probably didn't spend a lot of time thinking as much as maybe I should have about how you were feeling. Because I, I, I was trying to function. We weren't sleeping... But I also knew you were with your cousins and you were safe and, you know, they were there emotionally for you. You know, my my sister, like you had family. Mm -hmm. the yeah, I was not alone. No, I was with them. And like I said, up in North Seattle and hanging out and basically trying to have a good time out of it was. Yeah. was trying to just like if I if I have enough fun with my cousins and hang out here and they had friends over and we were basically just having 10, 15 people over every day hanging out then I was able to sort of pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah, I think that was really good. And I also think that that was the bonding. You know what? I want to say something to these listeners because they hear this from me that that everything can be used for good. And I've, I've had people get a little confused for a minute about that saying, really? You can't think it was good that she was shot. Well, of course not. There's nothing good about that. But we can use everything for good. And I think it's really interesting because I feel like the bonding moment that you had with your two cousins, specifically the ones we're talking about you were staying with, happened then yeah you guys became like brothers yeah in those few days well just because there was a positive byproduct of an event doesn't make that event a positive thing it doesn't mean that because she was shot um i you know i get to have this experience it's more like this happened there's nothing we can do about that 
and the silver lining that we found from that situation is x yeah. y or z so but i think people don't look for that or they don't no, and it's recognize important. it it is important to do to do like that retrospective reflection because if you just look at a situation it's all bad nothing good came of that blah 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 blah. then you'll feed into that poor me poor me thought procession which is really easy to do and i did that a few times in yeah, those years gosh i do it too <laughs> you know everybody everyone we're all human but if you can't see anything that good that came out of any situation ever it's probably time to to talk to somebody look inside because i do believe that regardless of of the situation you can at least see something that happened after the fact is a ripple effect that yeah. may have positively impacted you so if you're not seeing it, you're probably not looking hard enough yeah you're probably not just not wanting, maybe wanting to see and, it. And look, of course, there's exceptions to the situation. You look at like what happened in Turkey and stuff. I'm not going to say that anybody sees any silver lining there. But we're talking about more of a. But a, I, I would, agree, I would a, disagree with that. How about you? There are all sorts of wonderful stories of of heroes that have gone in and yeah. saved people. And Rich was telling me that he saw something about a woman that was breastfeeding her child under rubble for I don't know how many days and. Uh, I think people coming, we, we saw that in 9-11 here in the United States where, gosh, all of a sudden we were bonded as one. Yeah, there was no more right versus left. It was just a, a people as a civilization yeah. just ready to defend um, what is America. So, yeah, I guess there's something to be said for that. And that's obviously we're talking that's a, a, a macro scale. And in our lives, this is but in it's our macro lives, to us, but it's micro well, to the yeah, world. For us, it was our turkey. I mean, I don't mean to compare that to that type of a disaster but this was our world was falling apart um i know that i was trying it, really hard to save her and it ended worst case scenario for and, us yes obviously well and, and, and as it's falling apart too i'm the kind that don't want i don't want people to feel sorry for me so i didn't tell people about it much my own family wouldn't ask and i'm thinking la da they're all going about their lives they're not even asking about I, my daughter's dying she's putting needles in her body because at this point she's addicted to heroin and i'm going why is nobody asking and i remember rich saying to me once because you act like everything's fine. Well, so that was my own fault. A callback to what I said earlier, uh, my process was out of sight, out of mind, and that was my own sister. Imagine this is not an immediate family member who you've not been receiving updates from uh, a secondary family member about. It's not always going to be on the top of your mind what's going on with that person. So, And they don't know what to say. We understand yeah, that So that's... we've had to offer those people, I think, some grace because... Yeah, just, I did, but I felt are just sorry horrified. for myself. Yeah, people are just horrified to... To ask because they know they'll get an answer and they may not like the answer and that's tough. Well, plus, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about even thinking about what to call this, this session and what we might talk about. But I'm thinking about, you know, the courage that it has taken for us to face all of these different things that we never imagined. And we've already talked about some of them. And I think that's what we're talking about right now is so if I'm the, that person you're saying that that extended family member, I I'm thinking that before this happened to me. If somebody had told me, oh, yeah, they're kids and drugs and, and, you know, gangs and all this, I might want to stay away because it would kind of scare me. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And and I'd look at the people like, did you not raise your kid right? I used to say that. Yeah. So I can understand that people had felt weird talking about things like drugs. It's a lot more of a topic now, unfortunately. But Yeah. Well, I mean, I mentioned to you that I had... Uh, a friend who obviously will remain nameless for the sake of protecting the that person, but uh, that person's mom would not let him hang out with me. He was not allowed to be around me. I was the problem child. I was the bad kid. And then uh, partially because of what was going on with Jamie, 
And then after she was shot, it was like done deal. There was a group of parents who I wasn't allowed to be around, and a couple of their children are now drug addicts, um, wow. street street people. So they've had to fall off their soapbox like I did at some yeah, point. Yeah, but huh? but also just goes to show that when they were judging me, I was judging Jamie. Everyone's judging each other, but the reality of the situation is drugs take no prisoner. They don't care what your socioeconomic background is, your history. I don't care if you're from the Caperni Green projects in Chicago or if you're from you know the Upper East Side in Manhattan, it really does not matter. If no. you get a taste of drugs, you have no idea what it could do to you. And it's given us a lot of opportunity to recognize that we were probably those people judging others now who don't want to be judged. No question about it. You're right. No, I, I, I've told, you know, I've told on myself about that. I was on my soapbox saying, that happens to your kids. You didn't raise them right. Uh-oh. Then that happened to me and I had to fall off my soapbox, got a hematoma on my head. You know, mm-hmm. that hurt. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do understand that. But so I'm thinking about all these things that we didn't ever in a million years expect to experience. In fact, I've said this before when Jamie was little, I used to say she would be the first woman president because she was so headstrong and, and smart and quick and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I can literally remember sitting at a Harborview in this little family room. And at one point there was no one else in there and I don't know where everyone had gone and I'm just sitting there and she was still on a breathing tube. And I was sitting there thinking, what happened to the first woman president? Yeah. How can this possibly be? Um, and I think, I guess you said earlier something like you didn't know how to act. And here, let's get out the manual that shows us what we're supposed to do when all this kind of crazy stuff enters our world. Nobody knows what to do. So we were all basically trying to survive. I was trying to keep a lot of it from you. You you might not even to this day know all of the things that I saved her from that you know, all the crazy stuff and cord and ankle bracelets and all this stuff. Cause I didn't want you to have to, to deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so lots of times we would just have our little conversations and we didn't even talk about Jamie, like, Oh, life's just, you know, all peachy. Um, but did I ever tell you that probably that I would go to your, I always went to all your football games. I made tailgate food, right. For everybody. We sat in the stands, we had a good time. And of course, I don't know much about football. Let's let's get real here. I don't. I'd be like, where's Sean? Okay, that's how much I knew. Where's the ball and where's Sean? But I would find myself all the time drifting to the cheerleaders because they were Jamie's friends and thinking, why is she not a cheerleader? And then some of the moms that would come by and, you know, panned out or sell whatever they were doing. And I thought, oh, they're the ones judging me. So I felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, they probably were as well. Yeah. Um, I know I received an absurd amount of judgment. I mean, what happened to our family is probably the worst thing that's happened to anyone at that school to that point. I mean, I, I couldn't possibly say that with, you know, any definitive proof, but I certainly didn't hear of anything in my four years there of anyone who had experienced anything else. So I can understand now retrospectively why that's why that was so hard for everyone else around us too. They're like, all they know is I don't want my kid caught up in anything right. to do with that. I would have been the same and way. If, if the one kid is bad, maybe the other kid is bad. I don't know. And well, yeah, they, they have, I mean, especially if they haven't been to our home, they don't know what we're like. They didn't know us very well. I mean, yeah, I completely. And so of course I distanced myself from parents. Had they gotten to know me, they would have completely understood and not been afraid, mm-hmm. but I felt different from everyone else. And I'm, I'll bet someone's listening that can uh, understand how you're feeling as the brother of someone going through all this chaos. And then as the mom, you know, I'm feeling like a guilty loser of a mom. You're feeling like you have a loser of a sister. I mean, it's just, there's nothing, no easy way through all this, but 
Um, I feel like, so then, yeah, let's fast forward to over the next decade, <laughs> life spun further out of control. So she gets addicted to the oxy they gave her in the hospital and who knows what she was already doing because let's face it, for three years she was going out of control. But I slept with her for 40 nights after she was out of the hospital slept in a room with her and one morning when she was I heard her in the bathroom I got up to help her and she was dumping these Sean okay it's not like I didn't smoke a little pot okay a lot of pot back in the 70s and stuff I'm not exactly you know naive mm -hmm. but I had no idea about opiates didn't know a thing about them I thought opiates were you smoked it in an opium den and I don't know where you know I didn't know I just thought pain pills were pain pills I took a half of one one time remember that mm -hmm. and I couldn't even function so I just didn't like them but when she was dumping them in the toilet, I said, what are you doing? You need them. And she said, I don't like the way they make me feel. Mm -hmm. How ironic is that? Goes to the point you were saying about when they take a hold of you. Yeah, my guess would be, I've thought about that because you've said that a lot of times and I've never actually offered this opinion. So hot take for everyone listening. I've never told anyone this. I don't think that she was being completely genuine when she said that. I think it was actually quite the opposite. I think what she was actually saying to you is, I don't think I can control these and I like how they feel too much and I need to yeah, dump maybe. them out before they become a problem. So maybe she was trying to stop And I herself. think she knew it was an issue for her and then the pain continued and she knew I have something that feels good that's going to make that go away and I'll just take these things. And damn it, I dumped and them when, down the toilet. And then <laughs> when, when she could no longer get those and was buying them on the street at $40 a pill and that became too expensive. I mean, yeah, it's the one progression. step leads to the other and... There's a, there's a much cheaper and faster way to get that pain relief and that fix that you need. You know, I think people too, that don't understand this whole drug world, they just think of it as, okay, they're, you know, we are concerned about overdosing and, and just having a bad life. But the reality is that at some point you do something illegal because you have to keep feeding the habit. You're not, you know, well, there are people who function by the way, who do take these types of drugs, opiates mm -hmm. and stuff, and they go to work and they function. But the majority of the people don't live functioning very long. Yeah, it's hard hard to exist on a functioning on a high level, earning uh, quality income, and supplementing a drug habit simultaneously. That's just uh, it's not easy for most people to do. It turns people into panhandlers, thieves, dishonest people. Um, you know, drugs are really the kind of the, I mean the person to blame yeah it's it's a pretty simple equation if you ask me the the production the mass production of these super addictive drugs and now moving into fentanyl and stuff it's... oh yeah and the revolving door at the border they're coming across just the other day oh i'm gonna get my numbers wrong i should have written it down but i didn't think about talking about it but here in phoenix they got was it 4.5 million fentanyl pills and another haul of whatever. Yeah, so like I'm sitting 1,500 there, I'm going, pounds of How are they getting and... to Phoenix? We're not next to the border. Okay, they're not ca they're not catching them at the border. Thank you, Phoenix. You know, and mm -hmm. all these other law enforcement agencies that are catching them. But we've got a huge problem at the border. This isn't here to to. We're not here to have some political thing. But the, it's a reality. I mean, no matter what you side of the aisle you're on, we've yeah, got the a majority big of the drugs the are being manufactured overseas and brought in across the southern border. I mean, that is yes, a, that is a that big is problem, an, an issue. Um, and and now they're. I mean, they're at elementary schools there. I mean, it's getting to be a really scary. So what we had to experience was, first of all, just the, you know, I knew Jamie was doing illegal things and there were all sorts of different things that were brought to my attention over these years that broke my heart. Um, 
would it be fair to say that you were raised because you I raised you now you your dad was obviously around too but we were I was divorced when you were one and Jamie was three so I was predominantly the person raising you would it be fair to say that you were raised by the honesty Nazi oh yeah yeah definitely there was it was definitely not like it, it wasn't tolerable to be dishonest it was okay to ask for forgiveness or excuse me for permission but not forgiveness I guess sort of the opposite of what people say you weren't supposed to do the wrong thing and then say, hey, sorry about that. You were supposed to ask in advance. You were supposed to to know the answer before asking. That do you remember when you said, don't I get any credit for telling the truth? What did I say to that? No, you were supposed to tell the truth. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, so for Jamie to do all these illegal things and be lying to me all the time and, and doing all this stuff, it that broke my heart too because I kept thinking, well, where did I go wrong? And it was before you had an understanding of the severity of what was actually taking place. You wouldn't have cared about some shoplifting and some little things. You're thinking, I can't believe my daughter stole something, not realizing what's actually happening. So in your head, you're still holding on to this level of normalcy that she's got the ability to be salvaged out of. If we can just get her to stop doing illegal things and go get a job, she'll be fine because you had no idea the throes of addiction. And we, this was the beginning of the opioid epidemic in the United States. We didn't know right. what was really happening. And I mean, I've, I've taken them myself. I can understand how people get addicted. Thankfully, I don't have that gene. I don't have the desire to feel that way every day. But I can understand. They, it is an addictive it's feeling. It's kind of a crapshoot, isn't it? Like, who has that that ability to go? Because I know people who have chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one per- person in particular who has chronic pain, and he takes a certain amount of oxy for a very mm-hmm. small amount for at a certain time of day for this hip pain. And doesn't have as zero yeah. abuse of it, or um, but he obviously doesn't have that. A couple times a year, I'll get five days worth because my back is so bad, and I'll take it over a ten or eleven day period. And I actually mentioned that to uh, a cousin of ours who had addiction problems and who's been clean and sober now for a few years. And she said to me, "That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That doesn't even make sense to me." She goes, "You had five days worth. How'd you not take that in a day and a half?" Wow. That was yeah. Her immediate reply. So I do believe that. There's just a, then obviously the choices that Jamie made led her to um, a place where she put herself in danger, got hurt, and then got addicted. But that being said, she couldn't possibly have known what was going to happen to her, what those pills were going to be like, what heroin was going to be like. I mean, there's certainly all this blame and guilt and things that we've felt that I've had to let go of over the course of time because... You know, it's not that she's not responsible for her actions, but she had no idea someone was going to shoot her and then she was going to get addicted to pain pills from the surgery. Right, so. yeah. No, and that, I guess you're right. It's interesting saying that. Sometimes I feel like if I wasn't on this mission to help other people to stand up and fight and learn how to get out of the darkness, because I think it's so incredibly important, because the fallout from the number of people addicted to drugs, for every person, how many family members love them? I don't know what the number is. We could make up a number. But we're talking about multiples more than people that are addicted. So we have these families that are just crumbling under the devastation of this. But I'm thinking, if I wasn't doing that, I would definitely be so vocal about this whole thing. Because, I mean, the toothpaste is out of the tube because of what happened with them getting this oxy on the streets at record rates. Um, But anyway, we talked about the border. There's all sorts of ways that this, you know, somehow needs to get attacked from all these different angles. Um... But you're right. I, I It was kind of at the early... So Jamie was shot the first time in 2004. Mm-hmm. So she started crashing in 2001. So yeah, it was really early on when we... Because I, I, at the time, Sean, I didn't know a single person 
that that I knew about that told me that was addicted to to oxy or anything like that. I knew I knew nobody. We were yeah. it, like we were it. It seemed, mm-hmm. you know, except for you know that guy that like that homeless guy in the streets. But because fa- we thought we were different forward, than him. <laughs> fast forward now. Yeah. I've had an old roommate overdose. I've had multiple friends from high school overdose. I've, I've known a bunch of people that are directly their the cause of their death was directly corollary to their use, sale, or distribution, or whatever of yes opioids. Yeah, scary stuff. You know what? Okay, so we had planned to come on this episode, and we had a topic in mind because we've had to face something really difficult. But I'm kind of thinking that we're going to do the, that for the, another episode. Because sure. um, I think that basically what we're just trying to do here, I think what's what's come out of this is I'm thinking about people listening. I'm hoping somebody listens to this who doesn't have a family member in addiction. I hope somebody listens to it and thinks we sound somewhat normal. Sure. And realizes that it can and does happen to anyone. I mean, I really do. And I also hope that just... Us still, you know, we're not crying and um, we're not down. We're not giving up. And I think that what we're trying to do is spread hope that even though our hearts are broken and we'll talk on the next episode about how we live now with a permanent hole in our heart after Jamie's murder, but our hearts are so broken and scarred and everything, but we still live with joy and happiness and hope. And I think a lot of people don't know, think that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say that, uh, regardless of all the bad that's happened, we've been able to find the silver linings, as we mentioned previously, there's plenty of good that's come out of it. The closeness that it's brought to with us and a lot of the people around us. Um, and there is absolutely not to be cliche, but there is absolutely a light at the end of the tunnel. It may not be the end of the tunnel you want to go down. You may not have any control over which tunnel you're going down. Yes. Um, and it's possible that it ends in tragedy, but it's also possible that you find your own strength from that tragedy, that you refuse to, to give up, that you get up off the mat, as you say, and that you do fight back regardless of what happens. Yeah, I think, and I think that's another thing that people struggle with, Sean, with not to get go down this road, but it reminds me of, of having faith and praying and you know, I've learned to pray a little differently, and I do think you, you can pray for, for specific things, but if we're looking at God like a good luck charm, we might be very, very disappointed to the point where you could literally lose your faith. Um, I think that amongst whatever people are praying for and working toward, they need to include, like you just said, courage and strength. And, you know, it, it even takes courage to just have peace. Right. Sure. People think that courage is like we're fighting all the time. We're in this, you know, fervor, this battle we have to sort out. But it takes courage to just say, I'm going to be in peace yeah. with this storm going around me. Yeah, I would agree. So um, we want to come back. We're going to end this episode. And hopefully all we've done here is just give you some kind of perspectives on on courage and making it OK to not to have the answers. I think, you know what, people, it's really interesting, Sean. I did an episode the other day with someone and she said she initially found me because she got online and she was typing in, like, how to fix my son. Wow. I said, you must have been sorely mistaken when you came across me, (laughs) right? (laughs) I had no answers for that. I don't mean to laugh about this because there's nothing funny, but I mean, she and I kind of chuckled about it. 
I don't have any answers for that. I wish. I'd rather have the answers for that. Um, it's a trillion dollar business right there. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine being able to, to help with that? But, but I do firmly believe, and I've heard from people that have had sons and daughters who have, have made it, who are on the other side or standing over their beasts and have said that their mom specifically in these cases had a, her getting herself better had a lot to do with them finally getting themselves better. Yep. Taking that pressure off them. Yeah. It's okay to not always be okay and to not always know what to do. But like you said, one thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with knowing that what you need for peace is even if you need to set a boundary with your child or your family member who's creating this consternation and this pain in your life. Because if you're miserable and sad, how can you really be of use to anyone else? There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't have the energy for this right now. I need you to give me the space because I know that I can't fix you and save you until you're ready to, to fight for yourself. And giving yourself that opportunity to just say, I don't have the answer and I can't fix this, but I know that I need personal peace. There's nothing wrong with taking that approach at all. Yeah, and I think it's really hard for moms especially because we're wired to take care of our kids and to save them and all that, protect them and all that kind of stuff. So especially hard for moms. And so I'm sure that, I think for you, maybe you didn't really know the degree to which I was self-destructing because I was good at hiding it, but you're fairly intuitive. And I'm sure you knew that I was, even if you didn't know the severity, you knew that I was not in a good place. So I would think that as the other child too, that in a way might've even pissed you off, you know, kind of frustrated you that I was even now you understand how hard it was for me. Well, I never thought of myself as the other child. So. <laughs> the, the first child. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? If, if, I'm sure that frustrated you that I was allowing this to happen. And I think now you understand more. You're older. You understand, you know, you have a dog. You understand now, right? <laughs> um, but I'm sure it's hard for siblings to watch that helplessly too. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So. Stay tuned. Never lose hope. That I think that's the most important thing. Never lose hope for your sons and daughters and your friends and whoever is dealing with this addiction beast because miracles happen all the time. People do stand up and fight. People do get better. But what if they do, and you kind of mentioned this, Sean, and then you're like a heap in the corner and they, you have to catch up to them because you've self-destructed. Not a good plan. Yep. Okay, so we'll see you next time. In the meantime, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, it's so important that you know that you are not alone. I'm standing right there with you, Sean. I'm standing as well. Right on. See you next time. Thanks for listening. I will see you next time. And in the meantime, if you want to jump into Warriors and Hope, and get access to free resources and check out all of our other coaching and resources, go to warriorsandhope.com. Whatever you're going through, know that you are not alone. I'm standing right there with you and alongside you as you stand up and learn how to fight, how to become a warrior in hope.